Section 4 of The Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. The Elements of Geology by William Harmon Norton. Section 4. Chapter 1, Part 2. The Mantle of Rock Waste. We have seen that rocks are everywhere slowly wasting away. They are broken in pieces by frost, by tree roots, and by heat and cold. They dissolve and decompose under the chemical action of water and the various corrosive substances which it contains, leaving their insoluble residues as residual clays and sands upon the surface. As a result, there is everywhere forming a mantle of rock waste which covers the land. It is well to imagine how the country would appear were this mantle with its soil and vegetation all scraped away or had it never been formed. The surface of the land would then be everywhere of bare rock as unbroken as a quarry floor. THE THICKNESS OF THE MANTLE In any locality the thickness of the mantle of rock waste depends as much on the rate at which it is constantly being removed as on the rate at which it is forming. On the face of cliffs it is absent, for here waste is removed as fast as it is made. Where waste is carried away more slowly than it is produced, it accumulates in time to great depth. The granite of Pike's Peak is disintegrated to a depth of twenty feet. In the city of Washington, granite rock is so softened to a depth of eighty feet that it can be removed with pick and shovel. About Atlanta, Georgia, the rocks are completely rotted for one hundred feet from the surface, while the beginnings of decay may be noticed at thrice that depth. In places in southern Brazil, the rock is decomposed to a depth of four hundred feet. In southwestern Wisconsin, a reddish residual clay has an average depth of thirteen feet on broad uplands, where it has been removed to the least extent. The country rock on which it rests is a limestone with about ten percent of insoluble impurities. At least how thick, then, was that portion of the limestone which has rotted down to the clay? Distinguishing Characteristics of Residual Waste We must learn to distinguish waste formed in place by the action of weather from the products of other geological agencies. Residual waste is unstratified. It contains no substances which have not been derived from the weathering of the parent rock. There is a gradual transition from residual waste into the unweathered rock beneath. Waste resting on sound rock evidently has been shifted and was not formed in place. In certain regions of southern Missouri the land is covered with a layer of broken flints and red clay while the country rock is limestone. The limestone contains nodules of flint, and we may infer that it has been of the decay and removal of thick masses of limestone that the residual layer of clay and flints has been left upon the surface. Flint is a form of quartz, dull-lustered, usually gray or blackish in color, and opaque except on thinnest edges where it is translucent. 
Over much of the northern states there is spread an unstratified stony clay called the drift. It often rests on sound rocks. It contains grains of sand, pebbles, and boulders composed of many different minerals and rocks that the country rock cannot furnish. Hence the drift cannot have been formed by the decay of the rock of the region. A shale or limestone, for example, cannot waste to a clay containing granite pebbles. The origin of the drift will be explained in subsequent chapters. The differences in rocks are due more to their soluble than their insoluble constituents. The latter are few in number and are much the same in rocks of widely different nature, being chiefly quartz, silicate of alumina, and iron oxide. By the removal of their soluble parts, very many and widely different rocks, wrought down to a residual clay, gritty with particles of quartz, and colored red or yellow with iron oxide. In a broad way, the changes which rocks undergo in weathering are an adaptation to the environment in which they find themselves at the earth's surface, an environment different from that in which they were formed under sea or underground. In open air, where they are attacked by various destructive agents, few of the rock-making minerals are stable compounds, except quartz, the iron oxides, and the silicate of alumina. And so it is to one or more of these comparatively insoluble substances that most rocks are reduced by long decay. Which produces a mantle of finer waste, frost or chemical decay? which a thicker mantle. In what respects would you expect that the mantle of waste would differ in warm humid lands like India, in frozen countries like Alaska, and in deserts such as the Sahara? THE SOIL The same agencies which produce the mantle of waste are continually at work upon it, breaking it up into finer and finer particles and causing its more complete decay. Thus, on the surface, where the waste has weathered longest, it is gradually made fine enough to support the growth of plants, and is then known as soil. The coarser waste beneath is sometimes spoken of as subsoil. Soil usually contains more or less dark, carbonaceous, decaying organic matter called humus, and is then often termed the humus layer. Soil forms not only on waste produced in place from the rock beneath, but also on materials which have been transported, such as sheets of glacial drift and river deposits. Until rocks are reduced to residual clays, the work of the weather is more rapid and effective on the fragments of the mantle of waste than on the rocks from which waste is being formed. Why? Any fresh excavation of cellar or cistern, or cut for road or railway, will show the characteristics of the humus layer. It may form only a gray film on the surface, or we may find it a layer a foot or more thick, dark or even black, above, and growing gradually lighter in color as it passes by insensible gradations into the subsoil. In some way, the decaying vegetable matter continually forming on the surface has become mingled with the material beneath it. How Humus and the Subsoil are Mingled 
The mingling of humus and the subsoil is brought about by several means. The roots of plants penetrate the waste, and when they die, leave their decaying substance to fertilize it. Leaves and stems falling on the surface are turned under by several agents. Earthworms and other animals whose home is in the waste drag them into their burrows either for food or to line their nests. Trees overthrown by the wind, roots and all, turn over the soil and subsoil and mingle them together. Bacteria also work in the waste and contribute to its enrichment. The animals living in the mantle do much in other ways toward the making of soil. They bring the coarser fragments from beneath to the surface, where the waste weathers more rapidly. Their burrows allow air and water to penetrate the waste more freely and to affect it to greater depths. Ants In the tropics the mantle of waste is worked over chiefly by ants. They excavate underground galleries and chambers, extending sometimes as much as fourteen feet below the surface, and build mounds which may reach as high above it. In some parts of Paraguay and southern Brazil, these mounds, like gigantic potato hills, cover tracts of considerable area. In search for its food, the dead wood of trees, the so-called white ant constructs runways of earth about the size of gas pipes, reaching from the base of the tree to the topmost branches. On the plateaus of Central Africa, explorers have walked for miles through forests every tree of which was plastered with these galleries of mud. Each grain of earth used in their construction is moistened and cemented by slime as it is laid in place by the ant and is thus acted on by organic chemical agents. Sooner or later these galleries are beaten down by heavy rains and their fertilizing substances are scattered widely by the winds. Earthworms in temperate regions, the waste is worked over largely by earthworms. In making their burrows, worms swallow earth in order to extract from it any nutritive organic matter which it may contain. They treat it with their digestive acids, grind it in their stony gizzards, and void it in castings on the surface of the ground. It was estimated by Darwin that in many parts of England each year, on every acre, more than ten tons of earth pass through the bodies of earthworms and are brought to the surface, and that every few years the entire soil layer is thus worked over by them. In all these ways the waste is made fine and stirred and enriched. Grain by grain the subsoil with its fresh mineral ingredients is brought to the surface, and the rich organic matter which plants and animals have taken from the atmosphere is plowed under. Thus nature plows and harrows on the great world's farm to make ready and ever to renew a soil fit for the endless succession of her crops. The world processes by which rock are continually wasting away are thus indispensable to the life of plants and animals. The organic world is built on the ruins of the inorganic, and because the solid rocks have been broken down into soil, men are able to live upon the earth. Solar Energy 
The source of the energy which accomplishes all this necessary work is the sun. It is the radiant energy of the sun which causes the disintegration of rocks, which lifts vapor into the atmosphere to fall as rain, which gives life to plants and animals. Considering the earth in a broad way, we may view it as a globe of solid rock, the lithosphere surrounded by two mobile envelopes, the envelope of air, the atmosphere, and the envelope of water, the hydrosphere. Under the action of solar energy, these envelopes are in constant motion. Water from the hydrosphere is continually rising in vapor into the atmosphere. The air of the atmosphere penetrates the hydrosphere, for its gases are dissolved in all waters, and both air and water enter and work upon the solid earth. By their action upon the lithosphere, they have produced a third envelope, the mantle of rock waste. This envelope also is in movement, not indeed as a whole, but particle by particle. The causes which set its particles in motion, and the different forms which the mantle comes to assume, we will now proceed to study. Movements of the Mantle of Rock Waste At the sandstone ledges which we first visited, we saw not only that the rocks were crumbling away, but also that grains and fragments of them were creeping down the slopes of the valley to the stream and were carried by it onward toward the sea. This process is going on everywhere. Slowly, it may be, and with many interruptions, but surely the waste of the land moves downward to the sea. We may divide its course into two parts. The path to the stream, which we will now consider, and its carriage onward by the stream, which we will defer to a later chapter. Gravity The chief agent concerned in the movement of waste is gravity. Each particle of waste feels the unceasing downward pull of the Earth's mass and follows it when free to do so. All agencies which produce waste tend to set its particles free and in motion and therefore cooperate with gravity. On cliffs, rocks fall when wedged off by frost or by roots of trees, and when detached by any other agency. On slopes of waste, water freezes in chinks between stones and in pores between particles of soil and wedges them apart. Animals and plants stir the waste, heat expands it, cold contracts it. The strokes of the raindrops drive loose particles down the slope, and the wind lifts and lets them fall. Of all these movements, gravity assists those which are downhill, and retards those which are uphill. On the whole, therefore, the downhill movements prevail, and the mantle of waste, block by block and grain by grain, creeps along the downhill path. A slab of sandstone laid on another, of the same kind, at an angle of seventeen degrees, and left in the open air, was found to creep down the slope at the rate of a little more than a millimeter a month. Explain why it did so. Rain The most efficient agent in the carriage of waste to the streams is the rain. It moves particles of soil by the force of the blows of the falling drops, 
and washes them down all slopes to within reach of permanent streams. On surfaces unprotected by vegetation, as on plowed fields and in arid regions, the rain wears furrows and gullies both in the mantle of waste and in exposures of unaltered rock. At the foot of a hill we may find that the soil has accumulated by creep and wash to the depth of several feet, while where the hillside is steepest the soil may be exceedingly thin, or quite absent, because removed about as fast as formed. Against the walls of an abbey built on a slope in Wales seven hundred years ago, the creeping waste has gathered on the uphill side to a depth of seven feet. The slow-flowing sheet of waste is often dammed by fences and walls, whose uphill side gathers waste in a few years so as to show a distinctly higher surface than the downhill side, especially in plowed fields where the movement is least checked by vegetation. Talus At the foot of cliffs there is usually to be found a slope of rock fragments which clearly have fallen from above. Such a heap of waste is known as talus. The amount of talus in any place depends both on the rate of its formation and the rate of its removal. Talus forms rapidly in climates where mechanical disintegration is most effective, where rocks are readily broken into blocks because closely jointed and thinly bedded rather than massive, and where they are firm enough to be detached in fragments of some size instead of in fine grains. Talus is removed slowly where it decays slowly, either because of the climate or the resistance of the rock. It may be rapidly removed by a stream flowing along its base. In a moist climate, a soluble rock, such as massive limestone, may form talus little if any faster than the talus weathers away. A loose-textured sandstone breaks down into incoherent sand grains, which in dry climates, where unprotected by vegetation, may be blown away as fast as they fall, leaving the cliff bare to the base. Cliffs of such slow-decaying rocks as quartzite and granite, when closely jointed, accumulate talus in large amounts. Talus slopes may be so steep as to reach the angle of repose, that is, the steepest angle at which the material will lie. This angle varies with different materials, being greater with coarse and angular fragments than with fine rounded grains. Sooner or later a talus reaches that equilibrium where the amount removed from its surface just equals that supplied from the cliff above. As the talus is removed and weathers away, its slope retreats together with the retreat of the cliff, as seen in figure 9. Graded Slopes Where rocks weather faster than their waste is carried away, the waste comes at last to cover all rocky ledges. On the steeper slopes it is coarser and in more rapid movement than on slopes more gentle, but mountainsides and hills and plains alike come to be mantled with sheets of waste which everywhere is creeping toward the streams. Such unbroken slopes, worn or built to the least inclination at which the waste supplied by weathering can be urged onward, 
are known as graded slopes. Of far less importance than the silent gradual creep of waste, which is going on at all times everywhere about us, are the startling local and spasmodic movements which we are now to describe. Avalanches On steep mountainsides, the accumulated snows of winter often slip and slide in avalanches to the valleys below. These rushing torrents of snow sweep their tracks clean of waste and are one of nature's normal methods of moving it along the downhill path. Landslides Another common and abrupt method of delivering waste to streams is by slips of the waste mantle in large masses. After long rains and after winter frosts, the cohesion between the waste and the sound rock beneath is loosened by seeping water underground. The waste slips on the rock surface, thus lubricated, and plunges down the mountainside in a swift roaring torrent of mud and stones. We may conveniently mention here a second type of landslide, where masses of solid rock as well as the mantle of waste are involved in the sudden movement. Such slips occur when valleys have been rapidly deepened by streams or glaciers and their sides have not yet been graded. A favorable condition is where the strata dip, that is, incline downwards, towards the valley or are broken by joint planes dipping in the same direction. The upper layers, including perhaps the entire mountainside, have been cut across by the valley trench and are left supported only on the inclined surface of the underlying rocks. Water may percolate underground along this surface and loosen the cohesion between the upper and the underlying strata by converting the upper surface of a shale to soft wet clay, by dissolving layers of a limestone, or by removing the cement of a sandstone and converting it into loose sand. When the inclined surface is thus lubricated, the overlying masses may be launched into the valley below. The solid rocks are broken and crushed in sliding and converted into waste consisting, like that of talus, of angular unsorted fragments, blocks of all sizes being mingled pell-mell with rock meal and dust. The principal effects of landslides may be gathered from the following examples. At Gona, India, in 1893, the face of a spur 4,000 feet high of the lower ranges of the Himalayas slipped into the gorge of the headwaters of the Ganges River in successive rock falls which lasted for three days. Blocks of stone were projected for a mile and clouds of limestone dust were spread over the surrounding country. The debris formed a dam 1,000 feet high extending for two miles along the valley. A lake gathered behind this barrier, gradually rising until it overtopped it in a little less than a year. The upper portion of the dam then broke, and a terrific rush of water swept down the valley in a wave which, twenty miles away, rose one hundred and sixty feet in height. A narrow lake is still held by the strong base of the dam. In 1896, after forty days of incessant rain, a cliff of sandstone slipped into the Yangtze River in China, reducing the width of the channel to eighty yards 
and causing formidable rapids. At Flims, in Switzerland, a prehistoric landslip flung a dam 1,800 feet high across the headwaters of the Rhine. If spread evenly over a surface of 28 square miles, the material would cover it to a depth of 660 feet. The barrier is not yet entirely cut away, and several lakes are held in shallow basins on its hummocky surface. A slide from the precipitous river front of the Citadel Hill of Quebec in 1889 dashed across Champlain Street, wrecking a number of houses and causing the death of 45 persons. The strata here are composed of steeply dipping slate. In lofty mountain ranges there may not be a single valley without its traces of landslides, so common there is this method of the movement of waste, and of building to grade over steepened slopes. Rock Sculpture by Weathering We are now to consider a few of the forms into which rock masses are carved by the weather. Boulders of Weathering in many quarries and outcrops, we may see that the blocks into which one or more of the uppermost layers have been broken, along their joints and bedding planes, are no longer angular, as are those of the layers below. The edges and corners of these blocks have been worn away by the weather. Such rounded cores, known as boulders of weathering, are often left to strew the surface. Differential Weathering this term covers all cases in which a rock mass weathers differently in different portions. Any weaker spots or layers are etched out on the surface, leaving the more resistant in relief. Thus massive limestones become pitted where the weather drills out the weaker portions. In these pits, when once they are formed, moisture gathers, a little soil collects, vegetation takes root, and thus they are further enlarged until the limestone may be deeply honeycombed. On the sides of canyons, and elsewhere where the edges of strata are exposed, the harder layers project as cliffs, while the softer weather back to slopes covered with a talus of the harder layers above them. It is convenient to call the former cliff-makers and the latter slope-makers. Differential weathering plays a large part in the sculpture of the land. Areas of weak rock are wasted to plains, while areas of hard rock adjacent are still left as hills and mountain ridges, as in the valleys and mountains of eastern Pennsylvania. But in such instances, the lowering of the surface of the weaker rock is also due to the wear of streams, and especially to the removal by them from the land of the waste which covers and protects the rocks beneath. Rocks owe their weakness to several different causes. Some, such as beds of loose sand, are soft and easily worn by rains. Some, as limestone and gypsum, for example, are soluble. Even hard, insoluble rocks are weak under the attack of the weather when they are closely divided by joints and bedding planes and are thus readily broken up into blocks by mechanical agencies. Outliers and Monuments As cliffs retreat under the attack of the weather, 
portions are left behind where the rock is more resistant or where the attack for any reason is less severe. Such remnant masses, if large, are known as outliers. When? Note the rain furrows on the slope at the foot of the monuments. In the foreground are seen fragments of petrified trunks of trees, composed of silica and extremely resistant to the weather. On the removal of the rock layers in which these fragments were embedded, they are left to strew the surface in the same way as are the residual flints of southern Missouri. Flat-topped because of the protection of a resistant horizontal capping layer, they are termed mesas, a term applied also to the flat-topped portions of dissected plateaus. Retreating cliffs may fall back a number of miles behind their outliers before the latter are finally consumed. Monuments are smaller masses and may be but partially detached from the cliff face. In the breaking down of sheets of horizontal strata, outliers grow smaller and smaller and are reduced to massive rectangular monuments resembling castles. The rock castle falls into ruin, leaving here and there an isolated tower. The tower crumbles to a lonely pillar, soon to be overthrown. The various and often picturesque shapes of monuments depend on the kind of rock, the attitude of the strata, and the agent by which they are chiefly carved. Thus pillars may have a capital formed of a resistant stratum. Monuments may be undercut and come to rest on narrow pedestals, wherever they weather more rapidly near the ground, either because of the greater moisture there, or, in arid climates, because worn at their base by drifting sands. Stony clays disintegrating under the rain often contain boulders which protect the softer material beneath from the vertical blows of raindrops, and thus come to stand on pedestals of some height. One may sometimes see on the ground beneath dripping eaves pebbles left in the same way, protecting tiny pedestals of sand. MOUNTAIN PEAKS AND RIDGES Most mountains have been carved out of great, broadly uplifted folds and blocks of the earth's crust. Running water and glacier ice have cut these folds and blocks into masses divided by deep valleys, but it is by the weather, for the most part, that the masses thus separated have been sculptured to the present forms of the individual peaks and ridges. Frost and heat and cold sculpture high mountains to sharp, tusk-like peaks and ragged, serrate crests where their waste is readily removed. The Matterhorn of the Alps is a famous example of a mountain peak whose carving by the frost and other agents is in active progress. On its face, scarcely a rock anywhere is firmly attached, and the fall of loosened stones is incessant. Mountain climbers who have camped at its base tell how huge rocks from time to time come leaping down its precipices, followed by trains of dislodged smaller fragments and rock dust, and how at night one may trace the course of the boulders by the sparks which they strike from the mountain walls. Mount Assiniboine, Canada, resembles the Matterhorn in form and has been carved by the same agencies. 
The needles of Arizona are examples of sharp mountain peaks in a warm, arid region, sculptured chiefly by temperature changes. Chemical decay, especially when carried on beneath a cover of waste and vegetation, favors the production of rounded knobs and dome-shaped mountains. THE WEATHER CURVE We have seen that weathering reduces the angular block quarried by the frost to a rounded boulder by chipping off its corners and smoothing away its edges. In much the same way, weathering at last reduces to rounded hills the earth blocks cut by streams or formed in any other way. High mountains may at first be sculptured by the weather to savage peaks, but toward the end of their life history they wear down to rounded hills. The weather curve, which may be seen on the summits of low hills, is convex upward. In figure 22, representing a cubic block of stone whose face are a yard square, how many square feet of surface are exposed to the weather by a cubic foot at a corner, A, by one situated in the middle of an edge, B, by one in the center of a side, C. How much faster will A and B weather than C, and what will be the effect on the shape of the block? The Cooperation of Various Agencies in Rock Sculpture For the sake of clearness, it is necessary to describe the work of each geological agent separately. We must not forget, however, that in nature no agent works independently and alone, that every result is the outcome of a long chain of causes. Thus, in order that the mountain peak may be carved by the agents of disintegration, the waste must be rapidly removed, a work done by many agents, including some which we are yet to study. And in order that the waste may be removed as fast as formed, the region must first have been raised well above the level of the sea, so that the agents of transportation could do their work effectively. The sculpture of the rocks is accomplished only by the cooperation of many forces. The constant removal of waste from the surface by creep and wash and carriage by streams is of the highest importance, because it allows the destruction of the land by means of weathering to go on as long as any land remains above sea level. If waste were not removed, it would grow to be so thick as to protect the rock beneath from further weathering, and the processes of destruction which we have studied would be brought to an end. The very presence of the mantle of waste over the land proves that, on the whole, rocks weather more rapidly than their waste is removed. The destruction of the land is going on as fast as the waste can be carried away. We have now learned to see, in the mantle of waste, the record of the destructive action of the agencies of weathering on the rocks of the land surface. Similar records we shall find buried deeply among the rocks of the crust in old soils and in rocks pitted and decayed, telling of old land surfaces long wasted by the weather. Ever since the dry land appeared, these agencies have been as now quietly and unceasingly at work upon it, and have ever been the chief means of the destruction of its rocks. The vast bulk of the stratified rocks of the Earth's crust 
is made up almost wholly of the waste thus worn from ancient lands. In studying the various geological agencies, we must remember the almost inconceivable times in which they work. The slowest process, when multiplied by the immense time in which it is carried on, produces great results. The geologist looks upon the landforms of the earth's surface as monuments which record the slow action of weathering and other agents during the ages of the past. The mountain peak, the rounded hill, the wide plain which lies where hills and mountains once stood, tell clearly of the great results which slow processes will reach when given long time in which to do their work. We should accustom ourselves also to think of the results which weathering will sooner or later bring to pass. The tombstone and the boulder of the field, which each year lose from their surfaces a few crystalline grains, must in time be wholly destroyed. The hill whose rocks are slowly rotting underneath a cover of waste must become lower and lower as the centuries and millenniums come and go, and will finally disappear. Even the mountains are crumbling away continually, and therefore are but fleeting features of the landscape. End of section 4 Recording by Roger Moline